0: Okay, good morning. Let's look at Revelation. Uh, We're looking at the church in Thyatira this morning. That letter is contained in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, the end of the chapter. Thyatira was the smallest of these seven cities. This is the longest letter sent. And uh, in in some ways, I think this is a hinge letter. This is a letter that stands... Um, kind of in between two different realities that are taking place. On one side of the spectrum, you have the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia, neither of which receive any rebuke, both of which are commended, both of which are in uh, facing a, a certain amount of suffering and tribulation and receive comfort from the Lord. <clears throat> I think the third letter would be... Uh, in terms of theme, the third letter would be the church at Ephesus, which is doctrinally pure. They've got the right answers. They're doing what they need to do, but they've they've, uh, let love for Jesus go. And with love for Jesus being let go, love for others is let go. And they're really at risk of becoming simply coldly formal. Um, The uh, church at Pergamum, is the first time that we see on that that spectrum then some false teaching beginning to make itself felt. The church has tolerated that. They've tolerated the Nicolaitans. Jesus tells the church at Pergamum, you need to repent. You need to repent, uh, which means deal with those teachers, confront them. Don't let them run wild. Don't let them harm people in the church. But there's a significant change that happens then in the letter to Thyatira. And that's just to kind of give away a little bit of of the passage as it unfolds. Jesus doesn't tell the church in Thyatira, you need to repent, you need to correct these people, you need to challenge them, you need to boot them out of the church. Jesus says to them, essentially, you know, they have gained so much power and so much authority, it's not in your power to deal with them. I'm going to deal with them. And he describes what he'll do. We'll see that. Then we see the church, in my opinion, the Church of Laodicea which uh, is is kind of in this this useless place. Jesus says you're neither hot or cold if you're hot or cold you'd be you'd be okay you 're neither hot or cold you're just lukewarm i 'm going to spit you out of your uh, out of my mouth We'll get to that in more detail when we get to the letter. Let me do say this: hot or cold doesn't mean you really love Jesus or you really hate Jesus it's not being hot or cold toward him it's a reference to uh to the hot springs within the city that produce hot mineral water that were used for uh, treatment of illness and treatment of physical ailments and hot hot mineral water being useful, and the fact that Laodicea sat in the mountains and there was ice and snow on the mountains and cold water came down to drink. So you had cold, refreshing water, which is useful. It serves a purpose. You have hot mineral water, which is useful. It serves a purpose. But when that cold, fresh water ran into the hot water, you ended up with lukewarm Alka-Seltzer water, which is useless. And Jesus says to them, you're useless that's the problem and then in my opinion the spectrum ends with the church in Sardis that's the church where Jesus says you have a reputation for being alive but you're dead now to all of the churches he offers a promise to all of the churches there's some degree of hope at least for believers within those churches but we turn our attention to the church in Thyatira just because of the length of it we're going to read through as, uh, talk through it as we read through it in the, the description then that, that we have, uh, the Lord Jesus is described as, uh, he says, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. To the angel of the thir- church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The title Son of God is an authoritative title. I, I can't really prove this, so this is something I can't prove absolutely, but I think it's the most authoritative title Jesus bears. With all the titles that he has, Lord, um, uh, Head of the Church, Christ or Messiah, Anointed One, Bread of Life, living, uh, Living Word, I think the most authoritative title that he bears is son of God. It tells us that he is God in human flesh, and it tells us that he bears the full authority of God the Father. So right out the gate, he says, this is being written to you by somebody who has absolute authority to speak. He has uh, eyes like a... Oops, I'm sorry, I forgot a cross-reference here. Psalm 2 describes... Part of what we actually see at the end of the psalm. I will tell of the decree. This is Jesus speaking prophetically. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So those verses describe authority being exercised that rod of iron is, is not simply there to smash and destroy. It's a picture of unshakable power, of irresistible power. Nobody at that time was going to stand against somebody who had a rod of iron unless they also happened to have a rod of iron. This isn't just a sword. This is like a shepherd's staff made of iron. And nobody else has the authority that Jesus does. And then The the psalmist really kind of joins things up under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he applies it to mankind as a whole, not just to Israel, but everybody. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Kiss the sun means worship the Son. Worship the Son of God, lest He be angry. Now, Jesus is either really insecure, or He deserves all worship and all praise and all glory. I think it's because He deserves all praise and all worship and all glory. In fact, I know it's because of that. It's not because He's immature or petulant. It's because nobody deserves anything in terms of worship, except for God and Jesus being the son of God, the expression of God to us is kind of that contact point for how we even know who God is and what he's like. The description of eyes like a flame of fire, fire in scripture is is most often a picture of judgment. Even when John the Baptist uh, says, talking about Jesus, one is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to unloose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's not talking about the the, the fire of tongues that came on Pentecost. He's saying he is coming to divide. He's coming to judge. He's coming to, to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's coming to baptize with judgment. He's going to immerse you in the Spirit of God if you're faithful and if you're a believer. He's going to immerse you in judgment if you're not. And it makes sense when you look at who John was speaking to, that he was speaking to people who needed to repent. They needed to recognize the authority of the one who was coming. Eyes are how we perceive. Eyes are how we know. Eyes are how we, we read situations and read literally. Eyes are the, the way we begin to understand. Eyes like a flame of fire, then, speaks to Jesus' absolute knowledge, absolute understanding, and and absolute purity of judgment. When he measures, when he divides, when he sees, he sees what's real, he sees what's true, he sees all of it. He sees absolutely all of it. In verse 23, Jesus says, All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, we're used to the idea of of God seeing our works. We can see our works. To us, our works are typically the things we're doing with our hands. They're the things that we're producing. What are your works like? You can follow somebody around and see their works. But you can't see their mind. You can't see their heart. But Jesus sees the mind, and Jesus sees the heart. And he brings judgment on the mind and the heart just as he does the works. There's, there's no point in saying, I think all that stuff, but I never do it. Because he's going to judge those thoughts. And he's going to judge the feelings there that, that are there too. We live in a really weird time. Um, feelings are all that matter. Feelings are all that matter in our, in our time. If you, if you feel it, then the feelings are genuine and you're innocent. That's not what I meant to do, so it's innocent. But there's are sinful feelings. They're sinful feelings. It's a small room. I know everybody's name here. And and so I'll just say this. There's no Hubert here, and there's no Winston here, right? Nobody's got a middle name of Hubert or Winston. I I do this one time because I thought I made up the name Hubert. And there was a Hubert in the room who was kind of offended because I made fun of Hubert as a name. Anyway, so if Hubert walks up to Winston steals his wallet and runs, we can say, that's an evil work. Winston's got something to complain about. If Winston turns around and calls Hubert a thief, Hubert's going to say, I'm not a thief. That hurts my feelings. And you know, we we live in a time, don't we, when people would say to Winston, what'd you say that for? Because Hubert's feelings are going to be affirmed. Well, there are feelings that are sinful, which means they're wrong, which means they're out of God's holiness, which means they need to be confessed, just as sinful works do, just as sinful thoughts do. We're not saved by any other means from sinful thoughts and feelings than we are sinful works. It's all by grace. It's all through the blood of Jesus. It's all by justification, by faith alone, through grace alone. It all applies. So we confess our sinful deeds, and we confess our sinful thoughts, and we confess our sinful feelings. The same people who were saying, who might have said 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, I can't help what I feel, I can't help what I think, now they're saying I can't help what I do, I was born this way. So when you start out by saying I can't help what I feel, it inevitably leads to action. And it leads to the kind of action that they say I'm not responsible for my actions. Jesus sees that. He sees all of it. His eyes of flame are this piercing, searching judgment who knows the works of his people and the works and the works of his enemies. To his church, he is the faithful Lord and shepherd, the husband of the bride; to his enemies, he is the wrathful defender who takes every attack on his people personally. I just want to encourage you, if you've put your faith in Christ, if you've been born again, he takes attacks on you personally. Somebody sets out to destroy you. Somebody sets out to harm you. He doesn't say, Well, all people are the same, and I love all the people, all people the same. His side is always on the side of his church. And we see that as this letter unfolds. Jesus' feet are like burnished bronze. Uh, This is a phrase that comes from chapter one, and eyes like flame of fire comes from chapter one. In chapter one, uh, burnished bronze is followed by refined in a furnace, the sense of heat, the sense of being molten. Um, burnished bronze is not two words it's one word it could be copper it could be brass the point being this is a metal that is used for making things so Jesus' feet are not human feet Jesus' feet are not feet of clay Jesus' feet are feet of refined, pure, holy metal, which means he won't be moved. He has the power to stand his ground while he divides from his people and the wicked and while he protects his people and while he judges the wicked. So what we see here very quickly with the Son of God is that he has the authority to judge. With his eyes, we know he has the knowledge to judge. And with his feet, we know he has the power to judge. So the room in Thyatira at this point is probably like this room. It's quiet. There, there, there are people who are singing. Their souls are singing. Their souls are singing because they've been serving him and they've been standing for him and they've been trusting him. They're not perfect. They're not sinless. But all of their hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks to those people now in, in verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Those who are genuine believers there in Thyatira are an admirable group. I'd like to go to this church. This is, this is a church that has godly works, their love for Jesus and for others. Their faith, not only in the person of Jesus, but in the in the word of God, can't ever separate faith in God from his word. Their service is service to him and service in his name and service to one another. Patient endurance doesn't mean patience. It doesn't mean just kind of sitting and waiting. It's not like you go to the doctor's office and you know that you've, you've got a You've got a, a, an 11 a.m. appointment and you get there at 10.40 and you know that the doctor won't see you until 4. It's, it's, it's not about that kind of patience. It means standing your ground. It's patient endurance. It's the kind of endurance that just isn't going to move. This is a good group of people. I would love to know these people. I think I do know some of them. So the Son of God has turned these flaming eyes to his church, first and foremost, and he says, I know your works. And I know your love for me and one another. I know everything about you. I know, he says, that your latter works exceed the first, which means they not only have faith, love, service, and long-suffering, those things are increasing. They're actually getting better. They're growing. And all of that is is absolutely wonderful. They're not just treading water. (coughs) They're advancing. They're increasing in the things that please the Lord. So what's the problem? Well, remember, at that introduction, you've got certain people in the church whose hearts are singing. And then you've got people whose hearts are waiting for the shoe to drop. And he says, but I have this against you. In verse 20, but I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. That first group, their hearts are singing because Jesus sees what's been going on. And there's another group. There's actually two groups. There's another group that's been dancing with Jezebel. They've fallen into her seduction. They're the ones that Jesus is speaking to in verse 22. I will throw them into great tribulation unless they repent. And then there's Jezebel herself and her children, which is not literal children. Jesus is not saying, there's a woman in the church, and she's so nasty, I'm going to slaughter her babies. He's saying, Jezebel has disciples. She has children who are just like her. They're as false as she is. They've embraced her teaching. They're promoting her teaching. They've rejected the truth fully and they're under my judgment. It's done. Done, done, done. Now, why use the name Jezebel? Well, the woman in Thyatira is not named Jezebel. I I can't prove this from the Bible, but I can prove it through reason. The woman Jezebel, the historical Jezebel that we see in 1 Kings and 2 Kings is probably the worst woman we see in the Bible. Nobody would name their daughter Jezebel. Nobody. Nobody would name their daughter Jezebel. There was only one, and she was absolutely evil. Did you think about naming Delilah Jezebel? No? no? Okay. Well, you kind of whispered. and No comment. Okay. Not going to share with the class. All right. That's all right. The historical Jezebel, we need to understand this in order to understand why she's referenced. The historical Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon that's over on the coast. Today it's modern-day Lebanon, about 20 miles south of Beirut. She was the wife of King Ahab of Israel, the northern kingdom. She was not a Hebrew. She was Phoenician. She didn't worship Yahweh, the one true God. She worshipped Baal, and she worshipped Ashtaroth. She violently and murderously opposed God's prophets who were sent to preach repentance and warn Israel of the consequences of disobeying God's law and to call them back to God's law. At the same time, she was providing for the living of 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Ashtaroth from her own table, which means Ahab's table, which means israel's table so the resources of israel rather than supporting the prophets of israel are being able to are being used to kill the prophets of israel and support idol worshipers she threatened the murder of the prophet elijah when he oversaw the destruction of the prophets of baal in the showdown on mount mount carmel when he said you call for your god let's find out who's god you build your altar, I'll build my altar. You call on your God, I'll call on my God. Let's see who answers with fire to consume the offering. When they obviously lost, he called the people to gather them together and they put them to the sword. Which means 450 men were slaughtered, hacked to death. This is, this is at least a PG-13 sermon here. And if you, if you filmed that scene, it'd be an R movie. This is how bloody it was, and the vengeance of God on those who were false. Uh, later on, Jezebel arranged for the, for, for the murder of a man named Naboth. Naboth had property right next to the palace of Ahab. Naboth had a vineyard. Ahab wanted the vineyard. Um, he went to Naboth. Naboth refused to give him the vineyard, sell him the vineyard. Ahab came home pouting, pouting. It said he came home sullen and he laid in bed and he turned his face to the wall. So Jezebel had Naboth murdered so that Ahab wouldn't be sad. The historical Jezebel rebelled against the word of God. She resisted and abused the men who taught the word and violated the commandments of the word of God to worship God alone and keep sexually pure and reject idolatry. That's what the Jezebel in Thyatira is doing. That's what she's doing. She's in rebellion against the word. She's resisted leadership. She's intimidating them and controlling them. How do we know? Because she's, she's proclaimed herself a prophet. She's not walking around and saying, I sense this about you. She's saying, God is talking to me for the church and you need to listen to me. And she's, she calls herself a prophet, so she's self-appointed she's actively rejecting the commandments of god to worship him alone and they know that because of what she's teaching she's teaching them to uh, eat food sacrificed to idols which isn't just accidentally the the situation that we see in first corinthians and romans paul says you go to the king's house and you have steak and it turns out they'd offered that to baal you didn't know no problem baal doesn't exist he's not a god But if the kings put the meat in front of you, not that they would do this, if the kings put the meat in front of you and say, we sacrifice this to Baal, you don't eat it because you want them to know that there's a difference between Baal and Jesus Christ. It's not that it's a sin to eat the meat. You don't want to give them the wrong impression. That's not what's happening here. Jezebel is actually trying to take people from the church to the temple to offer the meat and involving them in sexual immorality. Now, was there actually one Jezebel? Or is this a group of people? Commentators are are divided. It could be a woman who's being called Jezebel because it's a woman doing these things. It could be a cultic group within the church that's doing these things. And because Jezebel did those things in the Old Testament, the group's been called Jezebel. I tend to think of this more as being the Jezebel cult, than of being a, a particular person. But certainly because of the connection with the Old Testament, there, there's nothing in the Old Testament that says Jezebel was out trying to get uh, Hebrew men to have sex with prostitutes. The, the, the sexual immorality of the Old Testament was the picture of Israel, the wife of God, betraying God by worshiping other gods. It's spiritual adultery. And so certainly in Thyatira, there may have been actual food offered to idols being eaten and there may have been actual sexual immorality but there's also the possibility that what Jezebel is doing in Thyatira is more subtle and that's the seduction part she's seducing them and they're not seeing it they're not seeing it they're vulnerable to it the church has tolerated this They've tolerated her self-appointed claim to be a prophet. They've refused to put her to the test, as the Ephesians did when they tested the apostles, those who claimed to be apostles and were not, and found them false earlier in Revelation chapter 2. They've not compared her words and her teachings and her actions to what the Bible teaches. They've tolerated her. The very fact that it sa- he says that she's seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols, makes me think that she- she's trying to produce some kind of a desire. Seduction is all about a rising, uh, fanning a desire into flame. Seduction is all about trying to get somebody to want something that they don't have. Now there's an irony here. And that there are people today who talk about a, a so-called Jezebel spirit. There's no such thing. You know how I know that there's no such thing? Because this is silent on the idea of a Jezebel spirit, that there's a demonic entity or demonic presence called a Jezebel spirit. Where does that come from? It comes from false teachers. But there's an irony here, too, that goes beyond that. If, if you jump on Google and you, you uh, Google Jezebel spirit, you can very quickly find a list of characteristics that are supposed to be true of those who have the so-called Jezebel spirit. I don't have a list. I didn't want to keep it. But the irony is that in, in the, the past years, as women have come and warned me, primarily women, never had a man do it, which doesn't mean men don't. I'm just... Factually, that's what happened with me. As they came and talked about the danger of this Jezebel spirit, and when I finally went and looked it up, it was amazing how many of the traits applied to this woman. One of the traits that the Jezebel spirit supposedly has is that if you challenge them, or if yeah, if you challenge them, they get very angry. If you'd go to the Word of God and show them what's true, they get very angry. And every single one of the women who have said to me, we've got to be worried about the Jezebel spirit. When I said, is that biblical? Became very angry and defensive. It's just bizarre. So these ideas kind of make their own, make their own way, and people get seduced into them. And I can tell you again from my own experience because I've people I've had people tell me I'm prophetically gifted. I've had people say, "Oh, that person's prophetically gifted." And when they come up and say, "God has a word for you," it's really hard to say, "You're lying." Very few of us would look in somebody's eyes and tell them, "You're lying right now." But that's exactly what's happening. If they're not showing you in scripture, a word from God, how can they prove it's a word from God? You've got to go to the Scripture and test it. Suggest that next time somebody does that to you. Let's go test what you're saying. And if it can't be affirmed by Scripture, which is supposed to be the the foundation of our faith, which is supposed to be the standard by which, we've already got a mom back there to... You've got a higher percentage, I know, but I think that it's probably not one of yours. Although dads can tell. Okay. I can't tell. I hear a crying baby in panic. So um, is God going to give a special authoritative anointed word to somebody for you? that you can't verify by going to His Word? No. No. How do we know that? Because we're supposed to test all things, but the only way we've got to test all things is through Scripture. Jesus has given Jezebel and her cult time to repent. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And the idolatry would be included in that. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. That means disease, decay, and eventually death. It's too late. That's why he says, I gave her time to repent. She refuses to repent. Time's up. Here comes punishment. Here comes judgment. Even there, he's showing mercy. The historical Jezebel we see in 2 Kings 9 was thrown out of a window so high that when her body hit the pavement, blood spattered the walls and the legs of the horses that were standing there. And when they eventually went to bury her, after not too long a time, Jehu, who had been anointed king to replace Ahab, came into courtyard. This is what happened. Jezebel puts on makeup, does her hair, and she looks out. She insults him. And he says, who's on my side up there? Who? Who? And two or three servants looked out, and he said, cast her down. They cast her down. Her blood spatters on the walls and on the horse's legs. Jehu goes in and has dinner, because it's pretty clear she's dead. And then after he's had dinner, and he's kind of recovered from his day, he says, she is a king's daughter, even though she was evil. Go ahead and bury her. They go to bury her. The only thing remaining of Jezebel is her skull, her feet, and the palm of her hand. Second Kings 9. I don't like over-spiritualizing things, and so I just want to tell you this is, this is just kind of the thought that I have. That the reason her skull and her feet and her hands were left is because her mind was so impure. And her the works of her life were so impure. And the path she walked was so impure that even the dogs wouldn't eat them. I don't know that that's true. Please don't quote me. The Bible says that the dogs wouldn't eat her because her mind was impure. It's not what I'm saying. So we have the, the judgment against Jezebel. There's a judgment against those in the churches who have, who have fallen for her seduction. Those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her great works. Now this is not the great tribulation to come. This is enormous suffering they have the opportunity to repent there is still time for them but they must act he's not going to delay forever and third he says he's going to strike her children dead now as i said these are not little children these are not actual children these are disciples of jezebel's teachings but i think the word children is used there to shock us and to make us pay attention because this is such a crucial issue As soon as those people in Thyatira are here, I'm going to strike her children dead. I tell you what, every mother's heart stops for a second, and most of the dad's heart stop for a second. At the severity of the words, that this is going to happen to her disciples. And as a result of this, all the churches are going to know that Jesus Christ is the one who searches mind and heart, not Jezebel, not her prophetic cult. He's the one who knows the truth. He's the one who calls good good and who calls good bad. He's the one who will reward each one according to their works. Those who, like the faithful there, have good works. Those whose love and faith and service and patient endurance is enduring and growing, they're going to be rewarded. We're going to see that at the end. Those who have stood against him, those who have rejected, they'll be rewarded for those works as well. Now, I imagine that when this letter is read out in in Thyatira, that this is a point where everybody is, is responding internally at least. You've got the faithful who are probably almost weeping with relief. I have to think that even though the church leadership didn't do anything about her, that there had to be people in the church who saw what was going on and grieved about what was going on and were not being heard. They were not being listened to. Nobody paid any attention to them. So to get this miraculous letter from the Apostle John, who received it directly by direct dictation from the Lord Jesus Christ, had to come as as a tremendous relief. You've got the group of those who have been, he uses the word adultery, they've been crawling into bed with her, whether literally or by accepting her teachings and be drawn along. And I think that group is going to divide itself into two groups I I think you've got some in that group who as these words are read their hearts are falling and they know that they're guilty they know their sin and they're beginning to repent even as the words are spoken and you have another group that's getting angry and defensive and they're proving that they're not believers by rejecting the word of the Lord and pursuing the word of a false teacher and then you have Jezebel herself and her cult and I imagine they are outraged Furious because somebody has told her no. You don't go around self-appointing yourself as a prophetess if you are okay with hearing no. So what about the church? What about those who are faithful? Those who have dallied with her, have been cautioned to repent. What about those who have held the ground and, been faithful. Verse 24. Jesus says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. Now the deep things of Satan... Is, uh, is a fairly straightforward literal translation of what the Greek text there, the, the New International Version, uh, phrases it a little bit differently, uh, so-called deep things which are actually satanic. I don't know about you, but I've, I've heard people talk with great passion and intensity about wanting to go deep, about wanting to know the deep things of the Lord. No, 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 not this. The deep things. And they're Jezebel bait. They just become completely vulnerable to that kind of thinking. And I, I understand, I, you know, when you can read it with your mind and understand it and memorize it and you come back and it's the same and it keeps saying the same thing, there, there can be this sense, is there more? And, and I don't even think it's wrong to ask the question, is there more? What more? Is there more to my life in Christ? But I think there's a world of difference between asking, is there more? And saying, there is more and I want it. Because it sets people up. Let me just give you a practical example that I think all of you would understand. Probably not Emerson. A husband who looks at his wife and says, I love you but uh, I want more. Does he have good things on his mind? Probably not. See, that's not the kind of statement that speaks fidelity and faithfulness. So this is a group of people who do not hold to the teaching of Jezebel, who have not learned those deep things which are actually satanic they've held the course and jesus says i do not lay on you any other burden i think by that he he means that while he told the church in pergamum to repent and deal with those false teachers i think he says to them you can't deal with jezebel you can't deal with her cult it's beyond your power it's beyond the authority of pastors. It's beyond the authority of elders. I'm going to deal with her. I'm going to deal with her. Now, we need to understand that the church in Pergamum didn't meet in a room like this or a room like it, like it uh, gosh, that massive thing out at Benjamin with First Christian or some big place like Memorial's Field. The church in Thyatira was actually a group of congregations that met in homes. As they did. So you've got perhaps in Thyatira a dozen or two dozen or three dozen groups this size who gather in a small space. And some of those small congregations, they are faithful. They're holding the line, they're remaining true to the Lord. Some of them have gone completely Jezebelian. They've just, they've just, they they dove straight into that and never looked back. Others are a mixture. And and Jesus tells each one of these believers, this is not your issue, I will deal with them. He's not telling them, if you're in a church, if you're in a congregation that's being influenced, stay there. But he's saying it's not yours to correct her. It's not your, your job to correct them. You can't do it. They won't listen to me urging them to repent. They're certainly not going to listen to you. I'm going to judge them and defend you. And then we come to the promise. There's always a promise at the end of one of these letters for the one who conquers. The one who conquers is the one who does what Jesus instructs in the letters, the one who just follows what he says. We don't have to invent other meanings for the word conquer. He tells us the one who holds fast to love, faith, service, and patient endurance according to the word and surrender to to Jesus will conquer. The one who holds fast to what he has, to what they've been given what they already have. Now I want you to notice two things about this. He makes a, a statement about authority and then he makes a statement about intimacy. He says in verse 27 or verse 26 and then 27 to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. We read that passage from Psalm 2 earlier. We saw that Jesus has that authority. The same authority he receives, he's going to grant to us. Not in the same measure, but as his agents. So these faithful ones in Thyatira are saying, we're powerless. There's nothing we can do about her. We've tried, but we can't stop her. And Jesus says, no, you can't. I can. But you know the day is coming when you'll have authority. And I think that that comes with the millennium. I think it comes with the second coming of Christ. When we return with him, resurrected and glorified as the armies of the host of heaven, and he establishes his kingdom on earth, then we rule and reign on earth. Now, why a rod of iron? Be- because it's, it's going to destroy a sword. A rod of iron speaks of authority and power. It speaks of something that is unavoidable. And there's no defense against it. It's absolutely powerful. He is not going to give any of us a rod of iron today. We, we had Emerson and Delilah last night for a couple hours. And they're wonderful. They're a delight. This is not at all a bad story. We've got a couple little folding, collapsing walking sticks. And Emerson had the walking stick. And he slung it up over his shoulder and came down on the tip of my toe with it. Now, I had my shoe on. didn't hurt me. No fault. We just laughed about it and took it away. Because you don't give a child a stick. And you don't give any of us a rod of iron to judge other people. We can't be trusted with it. We'd hurt each other. We don't know how to use it wisely. There are people who already want Jezebel dead, and Jesus gave her time to repent. And there are going to be other people who, no matter what she does, are going to weep over her sorry soul. Jesus knows the right moment, the exact moment to bring judgment and how to do it. We will know that when we have been risen, glorified, and delegated by him to do this work. So the day is coming when you'll have the authority that you think you don't have. And you don't need it until he gives it to you. We're not lacking anything today. The second thing that Jesus promises them is intimacy. He says, I will give him the morning star. I will give him the morning star. Later on at the end of the book of Revelation, we get more understanding of what the morning star is. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So when Jesus gives us the morning star, he gives us himself. He gives us himself. Now what else do we see in heaven? We see the tree of life. We see the river of the water of life. We can think about other titles of Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the bread of life. Whoever eats my body and drinks my blood has life. I give life. Our our lives today are, are like the water in this cup. We have life in this vessel. And whatever is in this vessel is separated from whatever is in Donna's vessel and the other Donna's vessel. We think we're separated. And some of us deal with loneliness because that separation seems so extreme. And we know know that uh, from Scripture that we're not isolated from the Lord. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. But because of, of sin, because of our flesh, because of our state right now, there's no way to experience that. Well, in eternity, I don't think that instead of getting a little bit of life in this little cup, we get a massive cup and he fills that. I think the cup goes away. And rather, having a vessel that holds life, I think we have a connection with the Lord Jesus that is constantly giving life to us. That's intimacy. That's intimacy. See, we are connected. We are connected as a congregation. We are connected by the blood of the Lord Jesus as Christians. We are connected with him because he's our Savior. The Holy Spirit seals us and dwells within us, and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and I tell you what I know the sorry state of of the outer part of your temple I, I do that because I've got the same kinda crummy outside temple but these temples and those temples will not lose the Holy Spirit as the temple left in Ezekiel's time there's no lifting of the glory of God from this temple because he's promised he's won't not because I'm great not because this is a better temple than that but because he promised he won't but I have to take it on faith that he's there. And somebody who says, I'm constantly aware the presence of God has got no concept of what the presence of God means. Listen to what... The, the, the Bible says, "What uh, as it is written, what no man eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him." Now, Paul is quoting there. Let let me kind of expand on this a little bit for you. No one's eye has ever seen what God has prepared. The person who claims to have seen it is lying. No ear has ever heard about what God has prepared for those who love him because it hasn't been discussed yet. No heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him because there's no comparison for it. Where are you from originally, Demetrius, Louisiana? I was born in Chicago, I grew up in Louisiana. You grew up in Louisiana? What's Louisiana like? But don't compare it to anything we know. can't do it. You can't say, well, you know, like, you know, muggy, well, it's muggy here. Well, you can't use that because it hasn't entered into the heart of man. Why don't we know what it's going to be like? We don't have the language. We don't have the ability to even comprehend it. This is what's waiting for us. This is what's waiting for us. We have to believe that. We have to trust that what the Lord has said in his word is true. No eye has seen. No ear has heard. It has not entered into the heart of man of what God has for us. There are those who want us to believe that they've seen it, but they're lying. There, want, there are those who want us to hear that they've heard it, that they've been given it in a message. They're lying. There are those who want us to think that they've had a dream or a vision or they've imagined it or they've received special revelation. They're lying. I, I, don't, know, I don't know how else to, to put it. They're lying. Now, are they intending to be utterly deceitful? I don't know. It could be that they're deceived. But the passing on of an untruth is a lie. And because Scripture is so clear about what's to come, anybody who's got a position of authority, anybody who claims to be a pastor, anybody who's on a stage, anybody who has a platform that's a public platform for for ministry, I hold accountable to what the Word of God says. It's there. There's no excuse. Jesus calls on us to do this to hold fast what we have to continue in our love for him and for one another continue in our faith in him and in his word to continue in our service for him and for one another and to stand patiently and endure all of the other stuff that comes and washes against us and tries and seduces us away tries to seduce us away from him he'll begin to reveal what's to come when he comes. And, and maybe he'll just go, ta-da! And we'll go, oh. I, I tend to think it's going to be more like this. Have this. Then we have this. I'll turn the page. And for all eternity, the Lord is going to be unfolding more of what's to come. He's infinite. We're not infinite, but he's infinite. What he's prepared has got to have some touch of his infinitude. That's a word, I think. It ought to be if it's not. It's got to have some sort of a touch with it. If he can simply say, at the moment we're resurrected and he comes back, here's everything for eternity, we'll see. It's going to be okay. At least there's no pain. But because he's revealing himself, I think the rest of eternity for us, once we're able to begin to take it, is going to be experiencing this unfolding. That's intimacy. The Jezebels want us to believe they've got intimacy with God. They've got no concept of what it is. Father, we thank you for your love for us. You have promised us the morning star. You've promised us Jesus himself. You've promised us... Uh, authority, Not so that we can have authority, but as representatives of Jesus' authority. And Lord, there's not a, a person who calls you Lord and trusts in you for salvation who won't be ready to receive that authority when you give it. But you won't give it out to a special few. And you won't give it out until we can use it in a way that only glorifies you. So help us to hold on to what we have. If there's been any temptation to be seduced into into these things, Lord, help us to not play a confused game. Elijah put it a, a little bit harshly, I guess, but it was true. He said to the people of Israel, how long will you go limping after two opinions? If God is God, worship him. If Baal is Baal, worship him. So, Lord, help us to stop limping in in different streams, so-called. Help us to simply be faithful to what you have given and to love you with all of our hearts and to rely on your mercy and take the gospel to the world. We thank you for your precious love and your son, Jesus. We thank you for the Spirit who indwells us. And we give you honor and worship and glory today. In Jesus' holy name, amen.